My name is Dr. Suzanne Snyder, and this is Medicine, Mission, and Motherhood. And let's open with a word of prayer. Oh, dear God, we come before you, and first, we are so grateful. Uh, I'm so grateful for this conference. And, Lord, I thank you for each one who has attended that you've given travel mercies to get here. And, Lord, I just acknowledge that you have made each one of us, and you have gifted each one of us. We are unique. We are special. We are your children. And we have a message, your message, to proclaim to those around us in our sphere of influence and to the world. And, God, as you've um, given us so much, Lord, we want to put what we have back into your hands. We ask your Holy Spirit to be here. Um, your Holy Spirit is welcome here. And I just pray you'll direct my, my words and that you'll keep our minds and hearts open to whatever message you have for us today. And thank you for this time and your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, before I introduce myself, I want to get to know all of you all just a little bit better. I need to hold the microphone. Okay, I thought so. So, how many of you here are currently a health professional of some sort or studying to be a health professional? Either medical student, doctor, nurse, PA, pharmacist, respiratory therapist, any of those. Okay, so most of you. Okay. Um, How many of you are married? Or hoping that someday you'll be married. Someday my prince will come. Okay. Um, how many of you are mothers, parents, or hoping that someday motherhood will be in God's plan for your life? We're thinking, okay. And how many of you are considering mission work? Either short term, long term, yet to be determined. Okay. And last question, how many of you have ever thought, how is this ever going to work? How on earth am I going to be a health professional and a mom and a missionary? And is it even possible to combine all these roles? Through the years, I've found that this is a very relevant topic. And even after 30 years of being in my career in medicine, um, as I talk to medical students and residents, um, they still have these questions. So it still seems to be a very pertinent topic. And even after being in medicine 30 years, I still find that balancing work and family, and ministry, and time with God, it it is all very much a challenge. The GMHC has invited me to come and share my story. Um, I feel very honored to be able to do that. And I'll be uh, discussing some of the lessons that I've learned after 30 30 years in medicine, 30 years as a mom, and 16 years on the mission field. Not that I have all the answers, I don't. And not that I did everything right, because I didn't. Um, but maybe in sharing some of my experiences, you can learn from my experience and some even learn from my mistakes. And hoping that sharing my experiences, you'll be able to get some, some encouragement that whatever we give to God, he's not going to return that void to us. He will fulfill it. And as we give our lives and our work, um, our careers and our family to God, he is going to bless it far more than we could ever imagine. I have nothing to disclose. Um, So I'm Dr. Suzanne Snyder. Currently in this season of life, I am an emergency room physician in Columbus, Ohio. And I am married to a delightful Christian man, Jason Easta. And I have two grown daughters now who, uh, Rebecca is 29 with uh, three little boys of her own and Lauren who's 26. But in a previous season, um, my family and I were missionaries in Kenya. I served as a medical missionary with a group called Christian Missionary Fellowship in Kenya, where I worked and lived among the Maasai people and providing medical care in bush dispensaries over a period of 16 years. My family at that time was involved in a team of families involved in church planting, Christian leadership development, and primary evangelism. I was the only physician on our team, so our family in particular was involved with the medical work, uh, which involved overseeing nine bush clinics in in remote areas of southwest Kenya, among the Maasai. My first husband, Dave Snyder, was an ordained minister. We met in college, and as we dated and considered marriage and our future together, one of our primary goals was to combine our careers of ministry and medicine. While we were in college, we went to Haiti um, over a Christmas break 
a mission trip, and we worked with an orphanage there that actually had a church and a uh, clinic side by side under the same roof. And before that, I didn't, I hadn't really been able to comprehend that medicine could actually be involved in ministry. It seems that that's a simple thing, maybe, but I didn't, I didn't understand that. And it wasn't until this trip that I saw the church and the clinic side by side, same roof. Um, that it was a very tangible example to me that, yes, um, medicine and ministry can go together. And um, since that time, I've gone on numerous short-term medical mission trips where a clinic was hosted inside a church building as a means for the church to reach out to the community and to introduce people to Jesus. And in other short-term trips and in my work, I've seen that medicine is a very, very powerful tool to demonstrate God's love to people and thus preach the gospel. Medicine opens doors, and it opens people's hearts. What I found is that by providing excellent medical care, I earned a platform to speak on other matters, on heart matters and spiritual matters. While American medical culture tends to segregate medicine and ministry separately, on the mission field, medicine and ministry go very well together and they flow more easily together. So as we explored our calling to missions, we debated, do we go independently or do we go with an organization? I grew up in a church that supported independent Christian missionaries, and my dad was a boarding agent to a family in Brazil. And through the years, I saw time and time again where they would have some kind of financial problem, a crisis, and it really was hard for them because they did not have a supporting agency to fall back on. That was my experience. So with that, uh, my husband and I decided we wanted to go with an organization. But then, which one? As you you go to the exhibit hall, there's hundreds of organizations. How on earth do you choose one? Well, our our home church supported uh, the group called Christian Missionary Fellowship. So we were familiar with that agency. And it was the same church background, same theological background. So we went to them first since we were familiar with them. And we asked them, where could you use a doctor and a minister? And could you use those two and where? And they said, yes. And Kenya was the immediate response. So um, during medical school, we went uh, for a two-month internship. Um, MAP International, Reader's Digest Foundation, actually paid for three-quarters of the airfare. Um, But we went on a vision trip and got to see, it was sort of like, Try missions on for size. Check it out. We checked out the team, the people group, the work, the organization. And after two months of time there, living with them, working with them, with them, we felt yes, okay. We felt like yes, God is calling us to do um, to do this, to work with these people group and this organization. We felt that calling. So we came back to the states, had five years uh, to finish uh, degrees, uh, graduate degrees, which included medical school at the University of Texas in Houston and then MedPeds residency for me at Vanderbilt University Med Center in, in Nashville. So um, that took five years of, of education. Um, we used that time to do some support raising and partnership, prayer warrior development. Um, then we left for the mission field. When we arrived in Kenya, our first job was to learn the language because we were living, going to be living out in a very remote uh, area um, even though English is the national language, Swahili is a, well, English is government language, Swahili is national language, we were so far out in the bush that we didn't, those folks didn't know either of those languages. So we were encouraged to learn Ma, Kimasai. And our first job was learning the language and culture. And we spent a year doing that. Um, there was no language school at that time, so we had language helpers, and we would learn little bits of text and just every day go on our village walks saying, hello, this is all I know in Maasai, goodbye. (laughs) And uh, we got to know people, got to know friends, and got to know uh, the language. So, um, finally, after a year of language study, we moved to our bush bush ministry site. Um, Our location was southwest Kenya near Maasai Mara. We had a house, um, small but very sufficient, um, two-by-four structure with tin, concrete floor, uh, rain tanks for water, solar power for electricity. This was our view from the backyard. Very nice location. So we moved to our bush ministry site, 
And we were finally full-time missionaries. We were ready to start full-time missionary work. So we had some assumptions. Um, my husband was going to lead the church, preach on Sundays, and lead village Bible studies each day. And I was going to work in the clinics and continue their oversight and maintenance. It was a great deal. It was two missionaries for the price of one. What a bargain. And it didn't work. Um, there were several things that we had not factored in, such as homeschooling. Who was going to homeschool our children? And who was going to do the laundry and the cooking and taking care of the household? What we had not factored into the equation is what I now call, uh, this was my kitchen, it was pretty nice, um, gas-powered stove and kerosene-powered refrigerator. So what we hadn't factored in was the supportive spouse role. And the take-home message here is that the supportive spouse role is valid. It's an essential role. It's not just important. It's critical. Somebody has got to do it. And the person who does it, whether husband or wife, is not a second-rate citizen because it's a valid role within any marriage. And the first step is to recognize the validity of the supportive spouse role. Furthermore, the supportive spouse role is a full-time job. It can't be done on the fly. It can't be done halfway. It's got to be factored in, expected, validated, and it deserves the best, just like any other role that God gives us. So as Dave and I began to realize um, the necessity and the validity of the supportive spouse role, we realigned our expectations, actually redefined our job descriptions, and rescheduled our daily activities. While our family lived out in the bush, I was the primary homeschool teacher, which is a whole other experience. But I consider it a real honor and a privilege that I got to homeschool my daughters for five years. I think they thought it was torture. But they survived, (laughs) and they made it through, and they they graduated from college. Um, When I went on clinic rounds, then they took over as a substitute homeschool teacher. When he went to the Capitol for supplies or to the training center to teach a course, then I would stay home with the girls and... We became an experienced tag team, switching roles as we needed. So when we were on the field, I was the chief cook and bottle washer. And then when we went on furlough and I worked in a hospital and studied for recertification exams, then the roles reversed. And my husband became Mr. Mom. And he would pick the girls up from school and help with homework and do grocery shopping and cooking. To make it work, it required a lot of communication and advanced planning, organization, flexibility, and backup plans uh, to make it work. And I put some of these fun slides of my girls and the cool things that missionary kids get to do. This is not an Olin Mills backdrop. This is my daughter horseback riding among the giraffes. So the percentage of your time that's going to be divided between medicine and parenthood may vary from year to year or season to season, week to week, or even day to day. The point is that however you and your spouse decide to divide up the supportive spouse role, whether it's 50-50, 40-60, 90-10, the percentages have to add up to 100%. Because the supportive spouse role is valid, it's a full-time job, and it deserves your best whether you're on the mission field or not. So can you combine medicine, missions, and parenthood? Yes. But you may not necessarily be able to give all of yourself to all of your roles all the time. So, which leads me to another lesson, and that's that life comes in seasons. Life comes in seasons. I should have said turn off the cell phones for myself. (laughs) Okay. Life comes in seasons. So remember in the story when we moved out to the bush and we thought we could do it all? We thought we could do preaching and village teaching and homeschool and medical clinics. What were we thinking? We had two small children. That's quite an experience. Um, Lauren... Uh, Rebecca was was two when we moved to Kenya. Lauren was actually born in Kenya. Um, That's a whole other story. Um, We both survived that. Um, We had two small children, and yet we were both full-time missionaries, and how was that going to work? 
Well, the, the season of small children is not necessarily the season for medical journals or for or, or full-time medical work. The season of small children doesn't correlate to the season of reading medical journals. Here I was fresh out of medical school and residency, and I was getting those freebie medical journals every week. There were several, and I would stack them up on my desk, intending to read them eventually. And the journals kept stacking up, and so was my guilt, because I wasn't keeping up with all the reading. And I, was, I felt very guilty, because I didn't have time to read them. I didn't have time to keep up. And we honestly, we, we bundled them up, I'm sorry to say, and actually moved them from country to country and continent to continent because I really felt that I had to read them. Um, finally, I burned them, which is the right thing to do. And as I lost track of reading the medical journals, I also lost hope of ever being able to come back. I lost hope of being able to keep up in medicine. I could feel myself slipping as more and more information was forgotten and more information about research and drugs and, and strategies and, and treatments was not getting incorporated into my knowledge base. And I lost hope of ever being able to come back to the United States for medical practice. But as I released my selfish grip on medical knowledge and self-sufficiency, I learned that God is faithful and life comes in seasons. So the season of small children, in my honest, humble opinion, is not a season for full-time medical work. It's not a popular view in medical culture, but um, season of small children doesn't necessarily equate with the season of full-time medical work. When you're in your early seasons, it's very hard to see the seasons that are going to be coming forward. But now that I've lived through a bunch of seasons, let me share some advice that the season of small children is really shorter than you think it's going to be. Now, I know when you've got toddlers pulling on your shirts and runny noses and you're trying to clean up and cook food and they're screaming and you think, I'm never going to get out of the season. But they actually do grow up. They grow up faster than you think. They grow up faster than you think. They grow up fast, and I would just want to encourage you, don't let your children grow up without you. Don't let them grow up without you. And to be honest, our marriages and our children, they, those are our first ministry and our top priority. And I believe even a higher calling than medicine or even mission service. Well, the, medical, the, the season of medical journals did come during furlough when we were back in the U.S. and I studied for board recertification exams. And it will come again someday. Those journals are still stacking up on my desk. <laughs> I'll get to them eventually. Um, but for now, I can't do everything that I want to do. I can't be everything all the time with all my roles. And that brings me to my next lesson that I learned. Part-time is not a crime. When I was in medical school, there was definitely an overriding attitude that a medical career was supposed to absorb all my time. From my professor's perspective, part-time was not an option. If I didn't commit myself fully to medicine, then I was a nobody, and then my values really weren't worthwhile. I see some head shaking. That's what I've heard. That perspective is still out there, unfortunately. I hope you, I guess you can relate. And I've heard from some of you it's, it's still a pervasive attitude, but I want to, to just say it's a warped perspective. The, the American medical culture is a driven culture. But there are a million different ways that your career can play out. And they all have validity as long as your career is in God's hands. So while there's this outside pressure that you have to give 100% and you have to give more than full time and you have to work more than you really is best for you, that's the American medical culture driving that. That's not necessarily God and the Holy Spirit driving that. So... As we place our careers in God's hands, he's going to lead us to 
a place where we can define what is the best schedule, the best perspective, the best way to organize this according to his plan for us. So part-time. It's not a crime. And zero time for a season is a valid option. And just as life comes in seasons and part-time is not a crime, it's also true you can go back. You can go back. You can go back from mission service. You can go back from part-time to full-time. So you may have different seasons as you go through your career. Maybe you're going to have a season of homeschool. Or maybe you're going to have a season of foreign mission service. Maybe you'll have a season of full-time medical work here in the U.S. Maybe you're going to have a season of caring for aging parents. Or a season of professional enrichment, calling going back to school, maybe. But in each season, you focus on a different role. But going to the mission field or taking some time out of medical practice for, for family is not career suicide. Mission service is not career suicide, and what you give to God, he will not return void. Let me explain. When I first went to the mission field, I assumed that I would never be able to return and practice medicine here in the U.S. It may seem kind of strange now, but I wasn't the only one who thought so. I actually had a fellow missionary OBGYN friend who coined it career suicide. And we both had that understanding, it was false, but we had that thought that giving our careers to God in missionary service, we were cutting ourselves off from any future work in the U.S. But what you give to God, he will not return void, and he will fulfill. So after spending four years in Kenya, we spent our first furlough in San Antonio, Texas, where a major supporting church was located. Furlough. There's a big question. Furlough, um, other mission agencies will call it home assignment. So, like, if you're on the field, usually you're on the field for a period of time, six months to four years, whatever. Different agencies will have their times of service at different lengths. And then, generally, you're there for a period of time, and then you come back. Um, We were in Kenya for four years, and then we came back for a year. Um, then we switched it to three years and a year. Other groups will do like two years there and six months back. Um, every agency does it a little bit different, and it may vary too. We, we had different terms of service and different lengths of furlough or home assignment, even within the same agency, depending on what our family needs were. We had shorter uh, times on the field and came back more frequently when our kids were in a school option, uh, you know, a point in school where we just need that time, that summer back. So I just realized that I have a handout for this um, session. I forgot to put it out. helpful to to have something to write on and to fill in some of the the lessons that I have learned. So, thanks for asking questions, and you feel free to to hop in um, with any questions, and we'll hopefully have some time at the end as well. So, I went to Kenya, and after spending the first four years in Kenya, we came back for our year home assignment or furlough. Uh, we, based our, we were based in San Antonio, Texas, where our major supporting church was located. Um, and I got a job as a civilian pediatrician at an Air Force base. I worked two days a week. I was one of 12 part-time pediatricians staffing this acute care clinic. Um, certainly, as I got started working there, I felt really out of touch. Uh, I hadn't done American medicine in four years. I was uncomfortable. Um, but within about four months, three or four months, of working on a regular basis, reading, talking to people, getting consults, uh, running down the hall to ask the other pediatricians, how do you deal with this? Um, I, I did kick, I got caught up. And within about four, three to four months, I was one of the group. And I had learned that I can come back. 
and I studied that year and passed the pediatric recertification exam. And I learned a valuable lesson. I learned that God helped me to get through medical school. He helped me to pass the internal medicine and pediatric certification exams in the first place. And in that way, God had made a huge investment in my education. And I learned that what he helped me to attain, he would help me to maintain. So God helped me to study and pass the pediatric certification exam. The following furlough, he helped me pass the internal medicine recertification exam and then the peds exam, the following furlough after that. It's like every 10 years there's another one. They never go away. Um, But I just trust that God will help me pass those exams and keep up my credentials as the need arises in the future. For my second furlough, my second home assignment, um, we were invited, I was invited to return to Vanderbilt. Uh, Vanderbilt University Med Center, where I had done residency. I was given a faculty position in the Department of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics. During furlough, I worked as an attending physician for medicine and uh, ward teams and resident continuity clinics. To me, this was a miracle because I had basically gone from living and practicing medicine under a rock in the bush to the number 16 medical school in the country. And to me, that's just, in, in some ways... Uh, it just is obvious of God's sense of humor uh, that he would bring me that distance and um, a testimony of his faithfulness and care. Vanderbilt allowed me to keep that faculty position when I went back for Kenya for our third term, and I was then able to host uh, students, uh, residents and med students on an international rotation where they would come and work in the Maasai clinics for a month for school credit. The third furlough, I was back in the Vanderbilt system, and I worked in an indigent indigent clinic and at the Veterans Hospital in the emergency room. This was my daughter visiting me on Halloween for a very sick patient. Um, So God allowed me to keep this relationship with Vanderbilt over a span of 11 years, um, which is pretty cool. I would come and work at Vanderbilt during the furlough and then go and, and host students. Uh, in Kenya during while we were there. So after spending eight years in the bush, uh, we moved into the capital city, Nairobi, um, and God moved us in the capital city for a lot of reasons, primarily for our girls' education. Uh, they attended a Christian international school, and then I would commute out to the bush, um, going out for like a week, a month, Uh, to continue medical work out there and overseeing the Maasai clinics. God also spread my wings. And um, so while I was doing the Maasai work uh, there in Kenya, that term, we also had chances to go other places, um, like doing health seminars in Tanzania and Ethiopia. Uh, Had several uh, trips to Afghanistan to help um, with medical work that was going on there and a worldwide health conference in uh, Thailand. Being a Vanderbilt professor actually opened some huge doors to allow me to teach in China and Afghanistan. Cool how God works. So I want to encourage you to get the best education you can. Whatever credentials you're working on, go ahead and fill those out. Complete them, get your licenses, get those um, certificates, and then keep them valid. Get your CME, keep your licenses updated and renewed, because you never know how God's going to use those credentials to open doors. And even years, years on down the pike, um, there are licenses and uh, certificates that have been able to open doors that I wouldn't have seen um, a decade ago. Well, the season of Nairobi city life was far different than bush living. But it it afforded the chance to provide a better education for my girls. You know, I'm such a great homeschool teacher. We did okay. But uh, definitely my my younger daughter actually had some learning disabilities. um, And we were just hitting a wall with homeschool. And uh, we moved into Nairobi. It was just God's provision that uh, she was just about to fail first grade the third time. And... um, we, they put her through testing, and uh, the international school there, the Christian school in Nairobi, had the same provisions as what she would have gotten here in the States. Uh, so she got an IEP, 
Um, she got into resources. She got um, spe- special ed privileges or, or accommodations, and, and it turned her academic life around. Um, so we, we would have had to leave the field to come back, um, but God provided. And um, she, she eventually recovered and graduated from Johns Hopkins and is doing well, so God is good. Okay. Um, Nairobi Living. So they got a better education. At the same time, we were able to host more medical visitors. And in God's amazing timing, living outside of Maasai land actually encouraged the local Christian clinicians and church leaders to gain more independence. So as we were physically absent on a daily basis, that became a vital step toward the long-term process of disengagement and turning the work over to the local Christians. And um, God, God has been so good because the church there is growing and the clinic system, the, the clinics that I worked with um, for those 15 years are still open. Um, they're still functioning. They're actually independent now. Um, they're called community health partners. They have their own registration. And um, they're run by Maasai Christian clinicians and um, have a local board. Um, they actually let me stay on the board. Um, and we keep those uh, relationships alive. And uh, they, they receive some uh, donor support from our mission board, but mostly they have found other donor sources and are independent. And I try to go to visit. My husband and I go and visit as often as we can. So what happened to the Snyder family? Uh, Where are they now? And you may have heard me mention my first husband, Dave Snyder. Uh, My current husband is Jason Estep. There's an incongruency there. Uh, So I'd like to explain, and that brings me to my next lesson. Real missionaries have real problems. My first husband suffered from migraine headaches. Before we left for Kenya, he was treated with what was then considered standard of care, which included Imitrex and Phenergan for nausea and vomiting, and Percodan, which is a prescription opiate pain medication. He managed with his usual once-a-month doses. He'd take a day off of work, um, rest, and generally life went on. But when we moved into Nairobi, whether it was from smog or diesel fumes or burning yard uh, yard waste, job stress, or reasons that we will never know, the migraines gradually escalated from once a month to two a month to once a week to twice a week. And Dave had taken Percodan once a month for 20 years without a problem, or so we thought. When he took it twice a week, a physiologic tolerance developed, and before we realized it, he was addicted to the narcotic pain medications. Being a medical missionary carries a lot of honor and prestige, at least in Christian circles, but narcotics addiction, oh wow, Um, that's a diagnosis that carries a lot of stigma. It's also a disease that affects the whole family. It's a change in behavior, change in personality, betrayal, deception, and it was all there. Um, I just took a walk through the opiate um, exhibit, and it's very helpful. Uh, I felt like I even even going through it myself learned a lot, and I'd encourage you to to go experience uh, the exhibit there. In, 2000, in April 2006, I realized I could not account for all the Percodan tablets that Dave should have had for a two-year supply. And I found receipts from a local pharmacy where he had gone t- to get vials of pethidine, which is like Demerol, it's an injectable opiate. He had written prescriptions and signed my name. That's forgery. It's illegal. If done in the States, it would have cost me my license. The situation was bad. When confronted by our team leader, Dave agreed he had a problem, and he consented to inpatient drug treatment program in Nairobi. After the six-week program there, our family was brought back to the USA so that he could continue drug rehabilitation and medical care. 
We had to leave Kenya urgently. Unexpectedly, we moved across the globe to a town that we had never lived in and had no family. Our girls had to change schools. And leave friends and say goodbye to pets. We left our work and our ministries in the hands of others who were not expecting those and not prepared. We left suddenly and the leaving was messy and incomplete. In a short span of six weeks, we had lost our home, school, jobs, and identity. The losses were immeasurable. We were in crisis. And in some ways, we still are. After a two-year medical leave, I took a job with CMF in the Indianapolis Home Office as the Director of Member Care. I worked one day a week in an ER to just keep my skills fresh and to make ends meet. But despite six years of Narcotics Anonymous meetings and drug rehabilitation, drug addiction therapy, marriage counseling, behavioral couples therapy, family counseling, I feel like we did everything imaginable, our marriage did not survive. And I certainly made one of my fair share of mistakes as a codependent and broken. Opiate addiction destroyed our marriage and imploded our family. Addiction hit home. And real missionaries have real problems. Missionaries are real people, ordinary people. And the deeper that we're in service, the more we're a target for Satan. Mission service comes at a cost, and we truly are engaged in spiritual warfare. There are no guarantees in life, and there are no guarantees to missionaries that everything's going to turn out okay. The day the divorce was finalized, I was informed that my job with CMF was ended. I was divorced and unemployed. It was a tough day. But despite life's challenges, God promises to be present, and he promises to protect, and he promises to redeem. And he continues to grow and to mold us. In that season of ashes after divorce, God graciously provided me a full-time ER job, the income of which allowed me to support myself, to pay off the mortgage, to help my daughter through college at Johns Hopkins and care for my father in my home his last three years. And to God's amazing provision, I was debt-free in three years. It's God. So where am I now? I'm in Columbus, Ohio. What on earth am I doing there? Well, God continues his story of redemption in my life. God has given me a new husband and a new marriage and a new beginning. Jason and I both love God and love missions. And yet, we're both in very secular jobs, and we're firmly anchored in the U.S., at least for now. With Jason's job... Oops, excuse me. Um, Jason's career as an aircraft mechanic for the state of Ohio, and mine as an ER doctor in suburbia, It doesn't obviously mesh together as a combination for missions, but we do still have missions as a goal, both overseas and at home. So what does mission look like now in this season? First of all, we kind of have to recognize what season we're in. We're in the season of caring for aging parents. Jason and I are both only children. Neither of us has siblings to help care for our sets of parents. And first first with my dad, and now with my mother, we're finding that our parents have limited resources and they need more help. Some fun memories, even during difficult times of caregiving. When my stepdad died last year, we invited my mom to move in with us. 
and to stretch her funds so that we could help her more. She gets along the house pretty well, but she's no longer driving, cooking, doing laundry, or cleaning. She lives with us, and I am her primary caregiver. And Jason is an angel for letting his mother-in-law live with us. Particularly as age sets in and the repeat-o-matic stories just continue to play again and again. We realize we can't take care of her in our home forever. At some point, she is going to need more care than what we can provide. But she's living with us now for as long as she can. We're the sandwich generation, where the parent becomes the child and the child the parent. Caring for mom, we realize that at the season of life, that's our primary ministry. So how do we make mission service a reality in this season, the season of caring for aging parents? Well, what we're learning is that we serve within our capacity. Jason and I cannot live overseas right now. So instead of long-term, full-time mission service, we're focused on what we can do. And first of all, that's tithing to financially support the missions through our church and short-term mission services. By utilizing a facility for respite care or bringing in home care givers for mom, we're able to do short-term mission trips two or three times a year. And we visit both Kenya, and we've also been involved with Samaritan's Purse uh, for several years, actually about five or six years. Uh, We've been involved in their program for wounded veterans called Operation Heal Our Patriots. We go to Alaska for two weeks each summer, where I serve as the on-call doctor. We have a little one-room dispensary there to provide kind of urgent care services um, for the the visitors, the patriots, um, and spouses, the staff, and the community. And Jason helps out with the maintenance team, whatever they need to do. And we get to do some beautiful hiking while we're there. We have also made short-term medical mission trips back to Kenya. Um, As I mentioned, the clinics are still open and functioning. The relationships are very vibrant, and um, we are remembered. And fortunately, we're loved. And and we love these folks, too. So we try to go back and continue to provide medical service, to work alongside the national staff, to give them encouragement, um, and continue uh, active partnership in that ministry. We also have been doing some short-term mission trips through our home church. Our church in Ohio is a Great Commission church and partners with Great Commission churches in Latin America, some of which have clinics um, on their property, their church property, as part of their ongoing ministry. Um, Other churches will support short-term medical teams um, to open doors into the community. And in this capacity, Jason and I have gone, uh, made trips to Honduras last year and El Salvador this year. We've seen how short-term medical mission trips can validate and encourage the national workers and provide opportunities for the church to enter the community for evangelism, just um, uh, friendship evangelism and making relationships and introducing people to the church and to Jesus. When connected to the long-term church ministry, we've seen that the short-term teams can augment the local church and they can have a huge impact for God's kingdom. We are also learning that God is constantly preparing us for what he's going to bring next. I often wonder why God has me working in an emergency room. I'm med-peds trained, and sometimes my, my internal medicine brain has a hard time clicking into ER mode. Um, and I, I question why I'm there. I would much rather be on the field working, either back in Kenya or just any place. I would rather be on the foreign mission field, but God has said, no, not for now. And when I look back and I remember all the doors that opened, this incredible God incidences of how I got the job I have now, I just really feel that God opened those doors. And in that, in that way, I'm, I'm called by him to be there. But that doesn't mean that it's been easy. The position group that hired me actually lost their contract before I got started. And with the losing of the contract, 75% of the doctors left, which left those of us remaining very short-staffed. 
And the hospital metrics, uh, the push for productivity and efficiency, see more patients in less time, uh, build more, more services, and make everybody happy and get your patient satisfaction scores high. It's just suffocating. It just makes me want to throw up. It really does. Uh, or burn up or burn out. Um, and physician burnout is real. I actually have a personal experience with burnout last year. Um, and all the while, question, why, God, am, am I there? I don't have all the answers. But I'm relearning one of my own lessons. Part-time is not a crime. And I'm cutting back my hours in order to survive and to regain my physical and emotional health. Jason and I also realized that this is a season, and it's temporary. May of 2021, Jason will finish his required 31 years of service with the state of Ohio and be eligible for retirement and his full pension. Now, on one hand, his commitment to secure his pension keeps us anchored in the U.S. for right now. But it also, on the other hand, allows us the time and the financial resources to retire at a relatively early age. So we're already looking forward to ways that we can increase our mission service after we retire. And in the meantime, while we're waiting, we've made some important financial decisions. For starters, we have not allowed our income, I'm sorry, let me say this again. We have not allowed our standard of living to accelerate to our level of income. So as an ER doctor, yeah, I make a lot of money on an hourly basis. But we've been encouraged by our Christian financial advisor, even though you're making more money, don't let your standard of living gradually go up to that income level. So we're keeping our um, standard of living low. We're trying to live frugally and save enormously. I liken it to Joseph's seven years of plenty preparing for the seven years of drought. We're putting over half of our income away now in 401ks, IRAs, and savings. So that when Jason retires and we have the time for mission services, then we'll also have the financial freedom to go where and when God leads us. We're trying hard not to allow ourselves to be strapped to the typical American lifestyle that would necessitate that six-figure income. We're also realizing that all the money that we have, all those retirement accounts, whatever we have, it actually belongs to God. It's His, and He gave it to us to be stewards. And our income and our retirement accounts are ultimately meant to do good works for God's glory and bring as many people as possible into heaven with us, not just for our own fun. So that perspective... Those, that money that we have is to do good works for God's glory and bring as many people into heaven with us as we can. That perspective helps guide how we're going to spend it. So God perhaps is preparing us financially. Perhaps he's also pre- preparing us professionally. I can't help but wonder sometime if the new skills I'm learning as an ER doctor are honing me and preparing us for a future. Perhaps God will... Have call us to serve in Samaritan's First Disaster Relief Team, or maybe in that emergency field hospital. Maybe God would want us to spend two or three months in Kenya at a time, or to do another assignment with World Medical Mission. It's actually rather exciting to think about. I get goosebumps thinking about the possibility. So retirement is not just a time to quit or to live for ourselves. It will be a new season for mission service. So, medicine and missions, can it be done? Yes. With God's help and grace, it can. And should you consider it? Absolutely. If you give your career and your family and your life to God, He will fulfill it, He will use it, and enrich it more than you could imagine. I want to leave you with this verse from Ecclesiastes 11.1, to cast your bread upon the waters, After many days, you will find it again. All right. I will open up for questions at this time. There's already one really good question about some of the terminology that is thrown around that's hard to understand. Any other thoughts? And then some of you uh, have, have lived through some of these seasons. 
um, you may also have some advice to share. We've got about 10 minutes here. What questions do you have? Yes, ma'am. That's a really good question. How to, how to come back? She asked if I did any um, su- supervised work um, under a, if somebody had to supervise me when I came back from the admission service. Um, that's a really good question. I was initially going to say no, but there was there is um, there's some yes and no to that. And I've seen different people do different things in terms of coming back. Um, there's the far extreme of like maybe doing getting another degree or another residency. I don't have the strength and tolerance for that. Um, fortunately, God was very gracious. I walked into jobs where basically I pretty much got hired based on the credentials that I had. And even though I, I felt like my experience was a little bit weak, it was sort of just on the job. Like in the pediatric clinic in the Air Force Base in San Antonio, it was just sort of on the job. I was reading and you know, now we Google everything, but you can you can do up to date right there on the spot. Um, and I'd literally just kind of go down the hall or go next door, and you know, I got to be friends with the other pediatricians, and we would help each other. And so, fortunately, I've been in in um, situations where I had other people I could ask questions, and they were receptive to that. Although there was one, there's one uh, instance I can think of where I did need supervision. Um, in the emergency room job that I have now, um, because I'm not ER certified, I'm MedPed certified. When I came into that hospital and didn't, I had, I had fortunately five years of ER experience um, that had allowed me to get hired at other ERs. This particular hospital where I am now still wanted me to be shadowed or supervised for different procedures. So. Um, central lines and intubations and all those kinds of hairy things that I hadn't done in years. I actually was grateful that, okay, there's going to be somebody kind of checking me out on this. Um, and there were two or three instances where I'd have the other doctor come in and help me, and then there was some where I would, you know, felt comfortable and they'd sign me off. But for that credentialing process, I did have to go through kind of a supervision for like six months. I had to have my procedures checked off. Yeah. So I would say it's a yes and a no depending on the situation. Yes. Could you tell us about the balance that you've worked with your spouse and being on the same page with traveling, with how long you were going to be in the U.S., how you were going to school, school your kids, and how you arrived at that balance? She was asking how do we arrive at the balance and be to be on the same page with your spouse. That's a challenge because so often you're two individuals and every, and both individuals think, oh, my way's best or I'm seeing this very clearly. You need to see it my way. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of times it's just a very slow process of evolving discussion and prayer, lots of prayer, and asking God to intervene. For, for me, a lot of my story depends on or I reflect back on what I see as God's opening doors you know, circumstances or events that were just like, wow, this is amazing, this happened. And when I was on the mission field, my first furlough, I actually, oh, sorry, first term, I actually experienced three physical miracles. And even though I had grown up in a church, my, my education in my growing up years in my church was that miracles was the first century, but not today. So even though... I was a very strong Christian. It was just miracles, per se, didn't happen now. Um, And when I experienced three of them in Kenya, um, there there was a man basically who who had a stroke, hemiparesis, to try to make this short, totally paralyzed on one side of his body for like a year. So it wasn't like happened and he got better. It was a year later and he had had cerebral tuberculosis and malaria and brucellosis. He was very, very, very sick. Went to Tenwick Hospital. Came back and was paralyzed. And one day his family came to me and said, well, how's your dad doing? And they said, oh, he, he's fine. He's out with the goats. And I was like, yeah, he's out with the goats. <laughs> he's probably, they probably propped him up under a tree. He's out with the goats. Um, the next day I came to church and he was sitting there. 
And he was walking and talking, and he came up and shook my hand. And he started at the very beginning, and he told me every single event, going to the hospital, every time he came to the clinic, every time he got dehydrated, we had to give him fluids. And he went through the whole story. He had no slurred speech. He was perfectly normal. And then he said, do you know who has done this? And I thought, not me. There is nothing in my medical brain here can, that can give an explanation to why this person is totally back to normal, healed. And he said, Jesus did this. Okay. And I remember, and he turned around and he walked, and he walked five miles home. And I remember walking to my door, my house even now, and I thought, okay, this is like way outside my comfort zone. This is way outside my medical knowledge. And I have a decision. Did Jesus do this or did Satan do this? I don't think Satan would do this. So the only other option was, okay, I guess God still does miracles. So seeing God do different miracles. And then coming back and realizing, oh, wow, maybe I've missed it. Maybe he really has done a lot more than I haven't recognized. Um, so I think in many ways God opens doors um, and provides opportunities and in ways that we have to acknowledge and give him credit for. But in terms of getting on the same page with your spouse, good luck. It's <laughs> We're always on the same page, aren't we? No, it's a challenge. It takes a lot of prayer. Somebody else had a question. Yes. Um, I this, might, uh, this might be something where you have different uh, individualized responses depending on the individual circumstances. But what would be your advice for someone who... Uh, yeah, what to do if you're, you're planning on some kind of service in the future. It's going to be years down the road and, oops, got small children. That's in the journey. Um, we all make plans. The best way to make God laugh is to make plans. I mean, but we do it. It's like, okay, I've got a plan tomorrow. I've got to have my list of what I'm going to do just so I can check it. I have things so I can check those off. Um, plan next week. Plan my retirement. You plan. And, but, you know, it's, it's our financial advisor said, you know, retirement, we can plan for this but in two years, but it's not going to look the way you expect. Hello. It's going to, somehow something's going to be different. Your mom may not live as long as you think, or she may live longer than you think. Um, and then we have children, and God created them, so he's, he's not unaware of this. So the, a lot of times are, are what we think is going to be the path, it's going to get little nicks in it and crooks, and it's going to be a, but that tapestry, God's going to, it's all in his hands, and it'll be beautiful. So just keep walking. Just keep walking in. Want to be sensitive to the time. Any other question? Yes, ma'am. So I really appreciate your, your realness and your honesty. <laughs> and, um, I think we do tend to put missionaries up on pedestals sometimes. Um, and we want our missionaries to be so perfect and all good. So what are some ways that uh, the church could have supported you or did support you in those difficult times as a family? Or, or even the non-difficult times as a family? What are some of the best ways that a church can support a family like yours? Yeah. Just how could the church have supported our family? And I don't know. At the you know at the time it would have been really easy, and, and I and I think I did. There was definitely some bitterness and there was some anger. Why is this happening? And why aren't people supporting us better? And um, now, kind of God bring you know some time there and healing and some restoration. I can look back and say you know really. Everybody was doing what they thought was right. Um, the, the folks that need, felt like they needed to end my job, you know, oh well. It's, it was really painful at the time. Um, you know, I, I kind of stood on, this is illegal, but they, they were doing the best that they could. Um, and if that had not happened, I would not have gotten a full-time ER job which was what helped finance several things that needed to happen. And so in kind of looking back, it was like, wow, God provided in amazing ways. So 
Um, yeah, missionaries are, are, are real people. And I think my, my girls in particular, as they were growing up, the people that just treated them like, oh, you're just kids. You know, they fought on the front row just like kids. <laughs> and, you know, they, they appreciate just that realness. I will be here for a few minutes. Thank you so much for attending. We appreciate it. Bless you.